And this can drive a whole lot of exciting things. So this can drive, you know, different markets that the organized gets in, organization gets into. It can drive change within the organization, structure, technology investments, etc. So this is where threat intelligence capabilities become an integral part of the organization and deliver that value. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Andrew Slater, Director of OzShield at CyberMerk. Today, we're demystifying threat intelligence. I wanted to explore what some of the assumptions people have when it comes to threat intel. Thanks for making time, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Carissa. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a good conversation because it's something that I think people still don't quite understand maybe the value that threat intel you know, offers to organizations. So I wanted to sort of start off with your definition of threat intel as many still have different versions in their minds, I'm curious to hear what your take is. Yeah, well, I guess where I'd like to start is before we define threat intelligence is to define threat. So it's really key to understand that a threat is the intent, capability, and opportunity. And in this case, we're talking about cyber threat intelligence, so a cyber threat. So that's the intent, capability, and opportunity of a threat actor. Um, to you know, exploit our environment through any uh, number of means, if you like. When we talk about threat intelligence, what we're talking about, yeah, if you refer, there's, there's two main sort of definitions I like to refer to. So the first one is NIST, and NIST defines threat intelligence as threat information that has been aggregated, transformed, analyzed, interpreted, and or enriched to provide necessary context for decision-making. Um, so that's, you know, bang on. And that, that really relates to, um, the process of intelligence, intelligence in general. And, uh, the other definition I really like, and this sort of brings it home in the cyber space is from MITRE. And they talk specifically about cyber threat intelligence is the process of analyzing information about adversaries, as well as the output of that analysis in a way that can be applied to help network defenders and decision makers. Um, so I really like that one because it, it starts to incorporate who the audience is. Um, and one of the most important things uh, for me and about threat intelligence, specifically cyber threat intelligence, is this is not a self-serving capability. This is, you know, we, we are serving our clients within the organization. And we are there to produce products in yeah, MITRE's definition to help network defenders defend against threat actors, our adversaries, but also help the executives and decision makers um, make decisions in a risk-based manner for the organization as a whole. Wow. Thank you. I love that. I love that definition. I love where you started and where you sort of, uh, in your words, brought it home. Do you still think though, from your perspective, people are confused by threat intel because I think, I don't know, people sort of just throw the term around and maybe uh, it's not correctly represented or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And look, we see this all the time within in cyber threat intelligence and, um, you know, my background is technical. And so this is something I had to learn as well, which is, you know, it comes down to understanding the intelligence lifecycle. And just because we're talking about cyber and cyber threats, 
it's still a intelligence function. So as part of that intelligence function, what we need to understand is collecting data is different to information and information is different to intelligence. Um, so there's a number of intelligence life cycles that are available. Um, there's six step, five step, four step. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter which one the organization adopts as long as they're engaged and they understand the various definitions. So by me going out and collecting IP addresses, uh, for example, about infrastructure uh, that may be used by you know, certain threat actors, part of a ransomware game, et cetera, that is merely collection. That's not intelligence. And you know, we take that and we validate that and we collate that. That then becomes information. And it's not until we've processed and exploited that information, done some analysis and made it appropriate for our organization. Only then does it become intelligence, right? Um, intelligence needs to answer a few basic questions. You know, does this match other information or intelligence we have surrounding this subject? You know, whether the subject be a threat actor or a campaign, a uh, new malware family, et cetera. Um, what is the source of, you know, the data, you know, What's our confidence in that source? Um, but at the end of the day, the commonality between cyber threat intelligence and an intelligence function is it really answers for the organization that sort of, so what? Yeah, I've got this data, you've analyzed it, you've enriched it with a few bits and pieces. So what? Yeah, what is the assessment? Yeah, this is where the analyst highlights the way that the intelligence will impact the organization and, you know, start to talk about mitigations and things like that. So going back to threat um, intelligence lifecycle, what do you mean specifically when you say that? So the lifecycle is how we define the intelligence function within an organization. At CyberMerc, we work on the uh, five-step intelligence lifecycle. So the first step is planning and direction. Yeah, and planning direction is critical to the success of any program, any project within an organization, but especially intelligence. If we're going out and, yeah, the, the thing we see all the time is it, it, people, yeah, do this from a good place, um, but they go out and collect a lot of data and they don't have the guidance. So, you know, understanding, you know, what are the threats to my organization? So before we even decide to go and do uh, any data collection or how we're going to process that. Yeah, what are the threats to my organization? How does that translate to risks to the organization? Who are going to be my customers? So once we have an understanding of risks and threats, who are our clients or customers within the organization? And we get them on board really early. If those clients and customers are not familiar with an intelligence capability, well, part of our our remit as an intelligence team is to educate them, right? And this is why it's a life cycle because it never stops. So we start with that planning and direction. We map out some, yeah, you know, if we're not sure exactly what we want, we map out some basics. And then at that point, only then do we start collection because there is no point collecting data that we don't know what to do with it. We collect that data. We choose where, how, when to conduct that acquisition. And then we bring that into the team and we go through the third step, which is processing. This is where we validate and evaluate the collected data to make sure that it's useful and relevant to what our customers need. The next step from that is analysis and production. And this is where it ties straight back to planning and direction. 
within planning direction, yeah, we're helping guide our, our clients if they don't know, but basically this is where we're de defining the intelligence requirements of the organization. Analysis and production is where we're producing those products for those various clients. And those products can vary widely. Um, some of those clients, we might have the uh, vulnerability management team as an example, and they want uh, near real time flash reporting on new critical vulnerabilities um, that they need to go away in action. Whereas executives might more want a more strategic level report that allows them to do long-term trend analysis and future forecasting. The last step of the process is dissemination and feedback. This is where we get those products in the right format to the right people at the right time. But most importantly, feedback. It never finishes. So particularly when we've got you know, high numbers of staff rotation um, within organizations, which is something that everyone suffers from, um, changing business requirements, changing in the threat landscape, change risks, that feedback is really imperative to feed into planning and direction so we can adjust the intelligence requirements, adjust our collection and processing and our production as needed to ensure that the intelligence products that we're producing remain relevant for our clients. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. I think that, yeah, sheds a lot of light and fidelity on what that means in terms of the life cycle. There is a couple of questions that I have, but one of which sort of came to mind is when you spoke about like collecting data and information, like you said, like IP addresses, right? So there's something, and I mean, you would probably know this more than I would, but Threat Intel versus like OSINT or Open Source Intelligence, uh, I think there are people that claim they do Threat Intel, but in fact don't. So it's just merely Open Source Intelligence, right? So I think that sort of lends itself to what you were talking about before around just, you know, collecting information and like the data that already exists on the internet. Can you sort of talk a little bit more about are people doing this? And if so, why are people trying to claim OSINT as Threat Intel? Yeah, that's a really good question, Carissa. And I guess th this really comes back to definitions as well. So I sort of want to split this in half, if you like. So um, for any listeners that haven't heard of the term OSINT, that stands for Open Source Intelligence. So when we start to define this, um, open source is a type of data collection. So when we're talking about, you know, in that intelligence life cycle, we're talking about data collection. Data collection covers many things. Um, so from an open source perspective, this might be Twitter feeds, blogs, uh, other social media platforms, like GitHub repositories, et cetera. So they're open source in that anyone can access them. Um, sometimes you do need to authenticate, but it, it, there's no uh, commercial barrier to entry. Um, or vouching for someone or things like that. You can register for an account and get access to those data repositories. Collecting data does not qualify as intelligence. As we've sort of said before, data it doesn't equal information and information doesn't equal intelligence. So collecting data from open source uh, repositories is exactly the same as a threat data feed is not a threat intelligence feed. Threat intelligence or cyber threat intelligence and open source intelligence, by definition, are intelligence capabilities. So these are true intelligence programs run within organizations with skilled analysts, et cetera. So they go, even OSINT teams 
um, or OSINT capabilities within a broader intelligence team, they will still have an intelligence lifecycle that they follow. Um, they have an understanding of what the threats are, what the intelligence requirements are, what the priorities are, who their clients are, and when they collect that open source data, what intelligence products they're going to produce. We're seeing, yeah, time and time again, um, open source is a highly valuable source for data, both for cyber and other Intel requirements. Um, yeah, we don't have to look too far to see things like the Missing Persons Hackathon, which is run in Australia. Um, fantastic event where experts and enthusiasts come together to acquire and collect open source data about missing people. Now, they're not doing OS Int. It's not an OS Int capability in full, right? They're doing that collection. Maybe they're doing some processing in there. But at the end of the day, that data, it, sometimes information, is then provided to law enforcement investigators and analysts to finish off that life cycle, right? And they're the ones who trace and find the missing persons. Wow. No, I think that makes so much more sense now. Do you think though as well that there are people out there, and I'm not speaking badly, but I'm just curious to know, are there companies out there saying we do threat intel, but they're not really, well, they're just collecting real basic like IP addresses? I think a lot of that goes on. Um, cyber threat intelligence, like any technology, whether in cyberspace or not, um, gets heavily influenced by vendors and marketing and the rest of it. Um, so people will often um, think that they're getting intel when they're getting technical IOCs or, you know, things like in your example, Caruso, IP addresses without any additional context or evaluations. That being said, I do believe many organizations to ingest this type of data, which, you know, I like to refer to as threat data, and they do use it very effectively for analytical purposes. The misconception, I would say, is generally a result of not having an, a thorough intelligence procedure, um, not having personnel with the you know, required skills, not having defined intelligence requirements. And, you know, this is what you're seeing is data being ingested and and used for analytical purposes, but it's not necessarily, the data is not getting analyzed. So it's not being attached or answering any intelligence requirements to, to give us a better understanding of the threat environment, that sort of thing. But when we talk about using data for analytical purposes with just a little bit of processing, right? So maybe the data will now consider it information that can still be highly valuable in certain situations when used for things like within a security operations center, when we're talking about you know, uh, signature-based stuff, correlation rules, IOCs for blocking, et cetera. Um, specific example of this was during large-scale vulnerabilities like Log4J last year, where you know, at CyberMerk we were sharing, tracking, collaborating on unique IOCs, you know, that sort of just real low-level IP addresses, hashes, real basic stuff. But we're tracking that within the first 24 hours and distributing that within the first 24 hours of sort of exploit code being made widely available. And what that allowed organizations to do and our clients was before they could get the full handle and the full scope of the risk provided by that vulnerability, right? Yeah, unfortunately, it took 48, 72 hours plus uh, for vendors to be able to identify all versions of their products where uh, that were vulnerable and dependent on Log4J and things like that. 
So before they had that sort of visibility, um, this level of uh, technical intelligence, if you like, or just information was enabling clients to proactively hunt and detect exploit attempts in their environment whilst they assess the greater risk. Wow, that's awesome. I think that uh, makes a lot more sense now in terms of demystifying what all this means, especially for people or business leaders that don't quite understand sort of the difference and what that means for them. I mean, there's a couple of things I do want to focus on, though, before we move on. You spoke about Intel procedure. What do you mean by that? And what does that look like within an organization? Yeah, absolutely. So this comes back to that intelligence life cycle. So if we don't have the process and procedures in place, you know, we don't have people defining our intelligence requirements. Um, we don't have the collect process in place for identifying where, when, and how we're going to collect data, um, how we're going to correlate and exploit that data. And then from there, analyze it as well. Every step of the intelligence life cycle requires you know, a process and a procedure in order to ensure that the finished products are answering our clients' needs and delivering value for the business. So I want to sort of value, that's an operative word. Now, there's something that I was often spoken about in the industry, which is like, people often say like, yeah, let's just like get some Intel or getting Intel. But then do you think that many organizations in your experience just have data that they then do nothing with? Because we always talk about like adding value, but like, what does that actually mean? I mean, I, I know that I just asked you two questions, so feel free to answer them as you please. Yeah, well, it, it comes down to that definition, right? But yeah, when does data become information and when does information become intelligence? So, and, and as I just sort of spoke about, it can be a little bit murky because intelligence isn't just one form. And so four levels of intelligence that we follow are tactical, operational, technical, and strategic. So when we're talking about, um, yeah, it's not intelligence, it's just data. With just a, a little bit of correlation, context, color, and enhancement, if you like, that can become technical intelligence. Now, technical intelligence is um, has a short time to live and is considered fairly low level from a value perspective. And the reason for that is these technical um, in pieces of intelligence are normally considered like you know, highly specific indicators of compromise or IOCs. So when we're talking about this, I like to refer back to a thing called the pyramid of pain. And the pyramid of pain is how we define what's easy to detect, but also what's hard to detect and what's easy for a threat actor to change versus really, really hard to change. So if we, we start at the bottom of the pyramid of pain, down the very bottom there, the easiest to detect, but the, the, the most trivial to change is hash values, right? So if we are running some correlation detections, some signatures based on hash values, that's quite easy for us to detect. However, it's, it's trivial for a threat actor to change. Yeah, they can just recompile that very quickly and it's got a new hash value. All of a sudden, uh, the same threat actor using the same malware will bypass that sort of signature-based detection. Moving up, and I, I don't want to sort of dig into every single one of these too much, but above hash values, we have IP addresses. Once again, they're quite easy to change, quite easy to detect. Um, domains, URLs, etc. once again, fairly simple. 
once we start getting into, you know, network communications and post-based artifacts that are leveraged by, yeah, for example, a piece of malware, um, this is where things start to get a little bit harder to detect and a little bit harder for the threat actor to change. Uh, above that, we have tools and the final at the top of the uh, pyramid of pain, which is yeah, the nirvana we all want to achieve, is TTPs. So these are tactics, techniques, and procedures, which is a, a military-based term, but we use this within um, cybersecurity for a, a variety of things, particularly in the, the MITRE uh, framework. It's all built around TTPs. So you have your high-level tactics, lower-level techniques, in a lot of cases, sub-techniques, et cetera. So if we can identify through an intelligence program threat actors that pose a high threat and therefore risk to the organization and we can identify their TTPs. That makes for a long-term capability for detection, analytics, et cetera, within the organization to reduce that risk. You'll see some sort of TTPs will be very technical focused, but at the end of the day, behind that is a human being and we're all human and we all have our idiosyncrasies. And it's really, really hard to change some of those. So, you know, we're, when we're profiling um, threat actors and we're looking at doing, you know, things like tradecraft analysis of particular threat actors, we start to try and map out their pattern of life. Yeah, you know, so this can be any number of things. You know, what time was the code compiled? Um, what language pack was it compiled in? You know, where, where is... Uh, how certain values are written within malware, things like that. And over time, you can see these patterns emerging. And that's how you'll see um, a lot of intelligence analysts start to be able to attribute certain bits and pieces to certain threat actor groups. When we you know, do this analysis over time, this is where things become much more valuable to the organization because we're starting to collect important intelligence uh, products over a period of time. And so we're mapping out the so what to all of these threats to our organization. And that's when threat intelligence starts to become strategic and starts to get engagement with the executive board. And this allows them to understand the risk over time, the change in the threat landscape, the change in threats to the organization, and this can drive a whole lot of exciting things. So this can drive, you know, different markets that the organized gets in, organization gets into. It can drive change within the organization, structure, technology investments, et cetera. So this is where threat intelligence capabilities become an integral part of the organization and deliver that value. The more value you deliver, the more engagement you get from your clients. So it just comes back to that intelligence life cycle. We get more feedback. We get more engagement at planning and direction. We produce better intelligence products, so on. Thanks for that. I think, yeah, there's so, there's so many questions going on in there because I've come from a reporting and analytics background myself around, yes, having the data, but then what does that data mean in terms of insights? So one of the things I sort of want to understand from you, Andrew, is there's a few things that you've said in the course of this interview. You said data, but no guidance. So 
What does that then mean? And do you think that is that just sort of saying, oh, you know, here's a bunch of screens and a sock and here's all this data, but that doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't really tell us a story. Is that what you mean by that statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the products we produce, they tell, tell the story, right? So what are my organization's intelligence requirements? Um, this shouldn't be driven by the threat intelligence team, whether it be cyber or a physical threat intelligence team or any other intelligence team. This needs to be um, driven by the business. It needs to be focused purely on risks. So those risks give us an understanding of the threats and the threats um, drive our intelligence requirements. So the sort of questions we should be asking internally, and we should be from the threat intelligence team, we should be asking the business, yeah, what are your intelligence requirements? That'll drive our life cycle. That'll drive what is collected, how it's processed, and also the required resources and what end products will be produced and how. One of the things that you said, Andrew, which was interesting, is you said a lot of these requirements shouldn't be driven by the Intel team. It should be driven by the business. But then I think if you're sort of a business leader, I don't think a lot of people have a clue like how to even steer that conversation or even know what threat intel even is at that senior level. Like how does, are you sort of seeing like a disconnect? Because I still think that a lot of guys, you know, that I speak to at that business business level wouldn't really have a clue on what this means. And then they probably wouldn't be able to even answer sort of what are our requirements. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. And I think like the way I I sort of look at this is, you know, the topic of this podcast is sort of demystifying threat intelligence. And if we just take a step back for the moment, you know, if we look at um, executives in any organization, they have their specialization. You know, if they're a CFO, they're a financial specialist in legal, of course, they're a legal specialist, you know, they've uh, done a law degree, et cetera. Are any of them a technology specialist in anything at all? Of course not. So, yeah, this is the same as any technology conversation. Um, We don't go to our clients if we are, for example, desktop support. We don't go to these executives and say, um, right, we're rolling out some new desktops. Um, Would you like 16 or 32 cores? How How many gigs of RAM do you need? Those sort of you know, technical details are not the things that we should be asking our clients. However, we shouldn't be forcing the technology onto them either. So there needs to be uh, that consultative engagement, which can be fostered in a, in a number of ways. Um, training and education is very, very important. So we don't need to turn our executives into intelligence analysts. Um, nor do we need to go into vast amounts of detail about the different data sources we collect and what OSINT is and other bits and pieces. But what we need to do is educate them on what an intelligence capability can provide. Then working with other areas of the business, get them to have an understanding of the high level threats and risks to the organization. At that point, they will be able to start getting an idea of here are the questions that I need answered um, and, I, and I need the justification behind it, that so what, that assessment, right? 
once they're in that position, we're then in a, uh, an ability to start building out the intelligence lifecycle, start to define where we're going to collect from and what products we're going to produce. And of course, come back to dissemination and feedback. So dissemination is really important. It has to be timely and it has to be actionable. Um, and I guess th this is another point we sort of haven't touched on too much yet, but when we're talking about defining, you know, what the intelligence product should be, um, it comes down and I've talked about clients a lot. So, you know, executives are going to be clients of, um, strategic intelligence, you know, managerial level are going to be clients of more operational intelligence, you know, talking about security operations and, and cyber teams, they're going to be consumers of technical, tactical, and operational intelligence. But it's not just the SOC team. Yeah, we have threat emulation teams. We have the vulnerability management capability. All of these people are clients from a, a threat intelligence capability perspective. And so we need to ensure the products we produce are appropriate for them. But more so, just like you know, a security operations center, there's no point overloading them with information or more to the point, Back to being actionable, there's no point producing threat intelligence that it's not actionable. So it has to be that risk-based approach. And unfortunately, we can't action everything all the time. Um, yeah, quite often we go into smaller organizations and they say, oh, I'm so jealous of a large organization. We've only got a team of 10. Uh, I heard this organization has a team of 100. We then go into that larger organization with a team of a hundred and they say, oh, we might have a hundred, but we're so understaffed, right? Like no one ever has enough people. So we need to focus down on what we can action. So if I'm a business leader or executive and I've got a threat intel team, what should I be asking? Like just to start, like things that come to mind. So if they've got no idea and they're like, look, you know, I'm aware that we're paying for threat intel capability, whether it's internally or externally. Where should people be starting that conversation to ask the right questions? Yeah, so um, this is a really interesting one because historically in a lot of organizations, even if, if um, there are teams producing threat intelligence, they didn't always start with planning direction within the life cycle, right? Um, so I think the first point to start at is, you know, what are the threats to my organization? What are the risks to my organization? Once that's understood, what are the capabilities within my organization and within uh, our threat intelligence teams as well? So what technologies do you have at hand? What products can you produce? Where are the gaps? Yeah, are the gaps a data source? uh capability are we missing data sources do we need to buy a data source do we need to acquire technology to get a data source do we have a gap in skills if we do have a gap in skills or a gap in capability what uh organizations can we partner with for things like this you know within cyber threat intelligence the last sort of 24 months threat intelligence sharing is becoming a uh, much more popular conversation and we're starting to see things uh, both privately from um, 
what's called an ISAC, so an Information Sharing and Analysis Center. So this is a group of organizations that come together to, to share and collaborate on threat intelligence. So we're seeing uh, ISACs uh, becoming more popular, particularly in Australia. We're seeing threat sharing uh, platforms popping up, and we've also seen development from the Australian federal government, in particular ACSC and what they call the CTIS platform, which is Cyber Threat Intelligence Sharing. Um, that's really covering a lot of ground now and starting to get a lot of uptake, which is really, really good. So coming back to internally making those assessments, you know, it's, it's not always about buying another product. You know, um, it's about, well, what can we do to help uh, gain further intelligence to reduce those, you know, address those threats and reduce the risk to the organization? Um, training is always a big one. Training for executives, training for mid-level management and training for people who are on the tools as well. Um, that quite often that training and ongoing mentoring can be uh, far more effective than uh, investing in additional technologies. Another thing that's interesting as well that I want to get from you is you spoke before about, look, look we don't want to overload people with information, right? We've got to find that sweet spot. What is that sweet spot? What can you respond to at the end of the day? Um, it's no cyber threat intelligence is no different to a, a security uh, operations center. You know, there's no point having all the alerts in the world, even like we're not talking about false positives here, but there's no point in a security operations center generating 200 alerts a day if you can only respond to 100. So once again, we have to prioritize our workforce so rather than trying to do too much because what will happen then is you'll start to shortcut the life cycle right so the cap the intelligence capability of the organization producing more data does not mean producing more value or producing more products does not mean more value don't shortcut the intelligence life cycle continue to take time to understand the threats to the organization and your clients needs as part of this, uh, what's equally important is understanding your environment. Um, we see this all the time with vulnerabilities. You could see a vulnerability disclosed that has a quite high CVSS, which is Common Vulnerability Scoring System. But if you have an understanding of your environment, you might understand that that isn't necessarily a high-risk threat. The system that's vulnerable in your environment might be somewhere you know, way down the back of your environment. It doesn't have direct internet access. So, yeah, we come back to the definition of a threat, which is intent, capability, and opportunity. Well, we've got two out of the three, but there's no opportunity. A threat actor has a very, very low chance of accessing that system. So therefore, it's more appropriate for me to focus my resources in other areas, which potentially are a much higher risk threat to the organization. Back to the point about, you know, don't shortcut the life cycle. If you produce good intelligence products for your clients, the clients will continue to build and invest in the capability. Do not ignore the need for strategic intelligence. Strategic intelligence is what ensures the organization over the long term has the right intelligence to drive future decisions, including technology, investments, and change within the organization as a whole. I would always recommend if you can't do everything, Focus on what you do well. Focus on your core capabilities and partner for other areas where you can. 
So partnering might be a commercial engagement or partnering might be engaging actively in things like CETIS and ISACs. Uh, invest in technologies that provide machine-to-machine -machine integration as appropriate. This can help empower uh, lower experience analysts. So in that sort of you know, SOC example, if we are distributing our um, intelligence products for the operations team in a manner that is low touch once the analysis has been complete, so we have machine-to-machine -machine integration, that is going to provide much more context, color, and allow low experience analysts to get much further into a playbook um, with security incidents and things like that. Once again, with intelligence products for executives, the better that we provide those products, the less education that they are going to require to uh, correctly interpret those products as well. Do you think that people take shortcuts? You said before, like, you know, don't take shortcuts. Do you think people just uh, are doing that maybe because they don't want to do it, maybe because it's like a, a resource pressure or time pressure? Do you think people are doing that more often than not or not really? I, th I think it does happen. I don't think there's any deliberate malice on individuals. I'm sure possibly somewhere that happens, but the reality is we're all super busy. We see this all the time with things like um, documentation. People will just build the next thing uh, because we're so busy and we require all this stuff. The key here is to focus on how do I make the biggest impact in reducing the risk? You've got uh, technologies out there like threat intelligence platforms, which are extremely valuable assets. And uh, I talked before about that machine-to-machine -machine integration. That's a prime example of a uh, technology that can provide that integration and allow a lower experienced analyst to go much further, right? But going down the path of a tip, a lot of people overdo it. They don't look at what's actionable. So... Yeah, it comes back to containing the velocity and the volume of threat data and threat intelligence. More is not better. Um, focus on what you can action, what you can address, and what you can action within a timely manner. So I guess I want to sort of uh, conclude our interview. You spoke before like more is not better. So would you say that people need to manage their, their intel overload? Like are some people just sort of going overboard with it? Maybe it's not their intention. Uh, but maybe they just think, oh, I have all the information. But us as human beings, we can't really process all that information. And then as a result of being overwhelmed, we usually do nothing. So do you think there's a bit of that that's going on in the industry or? I think, I think there is the potential for that to be happening, uh, Carissa. We've seen that over the years with other areas of cybersecurity and other areas of technology. Um, all of these things need initial investment. And they need investment ongoing. And that's why I keep coming back to that life cycle. This is something that never ends. We're just constantly going through that, constantly improving. You, you can't just stand up an intelligence capability or a cyber threat intelligence capability and you know, wipe your hands clean and walk away and say, that's it, we've got one. This is something that needs to be um, you know, constantly watered and fed and invested in, people trained, et cetera. Wow. Well, I think that 
There's so many questions when it goes on to talking about demystifying threat intelligence. I think that, again, I wanted to sort of bring light to perhaps some of the questions that people are asking, but also, you know, reading things online, people have different interpretations, different versions of what it means. So I wanted to bring you on the show today to talk about what this means and and how this can help uh, people and organizations. So I really do appreciate your time today, Andrew, and um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Carissa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by Merksec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit Merksec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.